You're listening to episode 17 with MSU's Dean Chris Long. This episode is brought to you by Master Meter. Hi, this is Alan Heyman, president of Blue Drop. This is the podcast that is demonstrating the power of communication and collaboration in the water sector. It's water in real life with our friends and Blue Drop partners, the H2 duo, Stephanie Zavala and Ariane Shipley. We are dedicated to sharing stories that demonstrate how communication and collaboration move things forward. If you want to overcome your challenges, then you have to build relationships. Each week, we bring you an inspiring person or resource to give you the tools to curate connections with your customers that create impact. If there's one thing I can be certain of when it comes to you, it's that you love water. And if you're a water utility looking to manage your water you love, then you'll want to talk to our friends over at Mastermeter. They understand that you can't manage what you don't measure, and smart water management begins with accurate measurement. Account for every drop produced and delivered because the utility's progression towards smart cities and IoT begins here. We're trying to be the game changers of communication, and our partner, Mastermeter, is here to deliver game-changing results for you across finance, customer service, and utility operations. They offer an array of products to meet your utility's needs. To determine which smart metering solution is right for you, visit the h2duo.com slash mastermeter. So we're incredibly excited today to be chatting with Dean Chris Long. Um, maybe you didn't know, but the H2 Duo, me and Ariane, also have our own public communications consulting company called Rogue Water. And we were invited to be a part of a writing team from a PhD candidate at the University of North Texas named Teresa Moss to do a paper related to water and water communication and education uh, through the Public Philosophy Journal, which is how we met Chris at a writing workshop for that in Michigan this summer. And so we were, I was incredibly excited to get him on today. And some of my top takeaways from our conversation or that uh, the value of reverse engineering the metrics that you measure for your programs by going back to your core values. You guys know we're passionate about that. How his take on how millennials don't want to learn passively and how we need to be raising the bar of our educational programs and institutions to meet their expectation and thirst for knowledge and impact. And also how using technology and a variety of mediums is sort of the expectation of student learners today and not just we're not innovating if we're using technology. (laughs) It's kind of the standard. So without further ado, let's get to the show. Chris Long is committed to expanding the transformative power of liberal arts research and teaching and creating new opportunities for collaboration among community partners. He began his tenure as dean on July 1st, 2015. Under his leadership, several advances have been made, including the creation of the Center for Interdisciplinarity. He has successfully established the College of Arts and Letters as a catalyst of innovation and collaboration at MSU through signature partnership partnerships, such as the partnership with the College of Agriculture and Natural Resources and the College of Communication Arts and Sciences to advance a holistic approach to food research. He is co-founder of the Public Philosophy Journal, an open forum for the curation and creation of accessible scholarship that deepens our understanding of issues related to public relevance, and editor of the Journal for General Education. He is an expert on both ancient Greek and contemporary continental philosophy and received his MA and PhD from the New School 
for Social Research in New York and BA from Wittenberg University in Springfield, Ohio. Wow, I thought I shortened that and that was still like, <laughs> I said, hey, can you send me uh, the, the Dean's um, bio? And it was like two pages. I was like, okay, I got to. <laughs> You've been busy, Dean Long. I have. It's great to be with you both. That's great to be on the podcast. We are so excited to have you. And uh, Ariane and I often say that our uh, one of our superpowers is that we can tie everything back to water. And we're incredibly excited that um, you're one of our you're one of our guests who's kind of like the furthest removed from our industry. But we ended up having so much in common that I said, absolutely, we need to get you on the podcast. Um, and I'll quickly tell a little bit about how we met is I met uh, Chris when I went to Michigan State University for a workshop related to the Public Philosophy Journal, which I'm going to let him talk about in a little bit because I am part of a team that's working on a paper for that um, on water, of course. And we're sitting there on the first night and he's talking about some of his frustrations with you know, his industry that and in, that he's in and it's completely mirroring some of the same frustrations that Ariane and I have had in our own and so I realized that that he and I and and of course Ariane too since we're you know one and the same basically <laughs> that we are kindred spirits in this idea of collaboration and even and even though we're entirely different industries so you're a perfect example of how I think we can benefit by looking outside of our respective industries and, and areas of circles of influence that we reside in to kind of brain share and find new ways to partner. So tell us why, tell us your story and why you value building community. Well, I think the connection that we made during the writing workshop for the Public Philosophy Journal is a great way to start. First of all, let me just say, you know, although you might think that philosophy is far afield from the work that you're doing, let it just be remembered that one of the earliest ancient Greek philosophers, pre-Socratic philosophers, Thales, basically said the world is water. The, the primary yeah. element yes. of the world is water. So we have to remember Thales when we, when we start uh, these conversations. I will now. Exactly. <laughs> so, yeah, our conversation really focused at that point around the question of community engagement and what I've been very interested in thinking about and modeling here at Michigan State as a land-grant university is a much more dialogical and reciprocal model for community engagement than we've seen in the past. So one way to think about this is Historically, and this is a little bit of a caricature because, you know, community-engaged research and pedagogy have been functioning for, for many years, but there is a kind of model in which the scholarship that happens and the research that happens in institutions of higher education happens in somewhat isolation from the questions and the communities that are urgent for members of the public. Yeah. And so the... And, and you can see this sometimes when people talk about, well, applied philosophy or applied research. The idea being that you sort of work out the theory of it and then you bring it to the, the world. And that, of course, again, is a caricature. 
But what we're really interested in modeling are ways of engaging activists and members of the community who care about issues at the research agenda setting moment, at the question framing moment of the research process. So that it's not the scholars thinking about what might be interesting and important, but it's really in conversation with members of the community that we begin to come to a shared understanding of some of the questions that are most important and urgent for us. And that we allow that conversation to shape the research agenda and the theoretical endeavor. And then we allow the theory to be informed by practice and the practice to shape the theory. So that's kind of in a nutshell, the, the vision for this. I think that that piece is often sometimes the piece that so many times in our area, we tend to kind of jump over and taking the time to really invest in doing, asking the question of the people that we're actually serving. And so, um, you know, I was really excited to hear some of the things that, that you had to say in the value of that and the value of taking the time to ask the questions and, and ask them in different mediums, whether it be, um, a survey or whether it be a focus group and you know in in the academia world that probably comes and in the research world that probably comes more natural but as many of us in our industry are informal educators and so that's sometimes something that we just that we overlook you know and so it was it was really good to get that perspective from from you on the value of that um but go ahead i was going to say the the vision for the public philosophy journal is to do public scholarship with members of the public. And so the, the vision is actually quite different from a traditional academic journal because what we're envisioning is a process of conversation and dialogue with members of specific communities concerned with issues that affect the broader public in some way. And then not just having that conversation, but actually engaging in the scholarly endeavor with one another. And that means we've created a kind of what we're calling a formative review process. So most peer review for academic journals is evaluative. You sort of have an expert read something and you decide whether it's good enough to publish or not. What we realize is in the digital age, the ability to publish is as easy as pressing a button, anybody can publish what they want on yeah. <laughs> their blog or on Twitter or wherever. Our podcast. And, or their podcast. <laughs> and, and yeah, we can get into that because I really love what, what you both are doing with the podcast and using the digital mode of engagement to bring your work to a broader audience and to engage a broader audience. And I've been very heartened to see the success that you've had doing this. It's really, it's really amazing. Thanks. It's been, it's been a whirlwind, but it's been, this is like the, the best part of our fun. jobs yeah. is getting to talk to people and then share those conversations with uh, the rest of our people. So and whether or not we had a podcast, we were doing this already. So yeah, this right, is exactly. a bigger yeah. platform. Um, yeah. And what you don't, what, what you get from it. Yeah, exactly. And what you get from it, I think potentially is serendipitous, serendipitous con connections that you might not otherwise have had because you don't even know the, the community out there that, that cares about these issues. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, and you, you touched on the, uh, 
the PP, uh, the public philosophy journal, which I will now be referring to the PPJ because it's so much easier to say. So everyone out there knows what I'm saying. Um, you touched on it a little bit, and I'm going to, I'm going to ask you a little bit more about that in just a sec. But um, one of the things that I think would be, because as informal educators, we may not always have that experience of knowing even sort of how to begin to engage with the public in that way that that you're talking about i would love to see somehow more of a collaboration with universities or or higher learning institutions that can kind of give sort of a a template or you know like some sort of guidance and in, in the best way to do that because even in our um even in our experience with what we've been doing for, for our paper, we've had to rely on resources and, and people to ask questions of inside who, inside of the traditional uh, higher education world who can say, okay, well, if you ask your questions on your survey like this, you're gonna, your data is gonna be overwhelming or you're not gonna get the right kind of data or the right kind of answers. And so it's been really helpful to have um, to have those kind of resources and I think that that would be that would be a really cool resource for informal educators whether they work for water utilities or for for other entities that don't maybe have that background be able to have some some sort of resource like that because that's been incredibly helpful but um, so in our previous conversations with you you know I love how you talk about this old model of comedian community engagement and that's kind of where the subject matter experts come in and are just these talking heads and there's no real mechanism for feedback from the listeners but you and your team uh, at MSU are really taking this idea and revolutionizing the traditional academic view towards scholarship with the PPJ so you touched on it a little bit already but tell us a little bit more about what I kind of call this open source brain share that you guys are working on. I like that. I haven't heard that one before. That's, that's good, though. Excellent. I think one, one, well, it begins with a commitment to recognize that there are experts all around us, that everyone has expertise in, in areas inside and outside of the academy. And so we want to engage with one another with an openness and a willingness to learn from each other and uh, a willingness to kind of bring what we have to the concern we share. So that was the, the, the bigger vision of the PPJ was, well, okay, well, what is public philosophy? Everybody, we can go on and on about, you know, what does that exactly mean? But what we wanted to try to do with the journal was to engage in public philosophy as a practice of publishing about public philosophy. So unpacking that a little bit, what I mean by that is to say, making ideas public is at the heart of publishing. That's what publishing is. It's, it's making ideas public. And we recognize that ideas have transformative power. They have the power to shape and misshape our relationships with one another, <laughs> Yeah, as we've seen. So what we wanted to do was to engage with one another between the academy and the broader community around the scholarly practice. And so what we, what we decided to try to do was to create a, a journal that really was about a formative peer review process that engaged 
members who had expertise of all sorts in the issue. So what we, what we do is we invite people who are interested in something specific to submit a somewhat worked up paper to the journal. And then we have a peer review coordinator who, when they do that, by the way, they actually have to nominate a member of the community impacted by the ideas mm. to serve as one of the peer reviewers. And then the peer review coordinator on our side identifies a, a second reviewer. And these reviewers are not only thinking about evaluating the work for how good it is. They're actually, we ask them to look at four different aspects. We'll ask them to look at the relevance of the ideas, their accessibility, their intellectual coherence, and their scholarly engagement. And when you think about the issue of relevance, is this an issue of importance to a community? Yeah. And is it accessible? Does it, you know, rely on jargon? Or do you actually, are you able to talk in ways that are understandable to a wider variety of people? And so as we think about these different frames to, to evaluate and give feedback on the work, what we ask the reviewers to do is consider the composers of the work a friend and give the kind of feedback that you would give to your friend to try to make this a stronger piece, a more compelling piece, to refine the ideas so they have more transformative power in the world when they're published out. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that's kind of the idea. Yeah, I love that you talk about accessibility because that's definitely an issue that we struggle with in, in our industry because of the technicalities and the regulations and the science. And I mean, gosh, we could have our own dictionary of acronyms and, and things along that line. And, and uh, sometimes we forget that when we're communicating with the public, even at the most simplest example of there was this recent uh, study done by JD Power where they interviewed or surveyed some 40,000 water utility customers across the country and they asked this question of water quality well if you ask that to a question of someone in the industry they're gonna tell you things like disinfection byproducts or you know they're gonna cite a specific type of contaminant that they're that they're looking to treat whereas all of the customers were citing things like, water pressure and taste and odor issues like some of these issues that for a utility from a regulatory perspective are you know that's that's the second tier that's aesthetics you know and and so just remembering that idea of accessibility and speaking to your audience and knowing who your audience is so i i love that that's one of the things that you guys focus on well i mean it, what you're speaking to is this issue of the way in which wherever expertise is gained that also brings with it a set of vocabulary and sometimes very important technical vocabulary that's been developed for good scientific or academic and scholarly reasons, but it's alienating to people. And what, I, what we found is that by challenging experts of all kinds to put their terms in more broadly understandable terms, to put them, to, to unpack them, in substantive ways that they actually are learning a to understand their own expertise in a deeper way as well so you know it's not about it's not about leveling off or flattening the ideas it's about giving them the kind of texture that allows a broader community to engage with them yeah 
Well, Chris, in our world, education often falls in the just do enough, um, air quotes, <laughs> that check that checkbox category. Um, you shared with us your story about how one teacher inspired you on a path that you were on. We have our own similar stories. So how do we do a better job of at communicating the transformative power of education outside of academia? That's a good question. The full of them. I mean, everybody has everybody has a, a story about a teacher that changed their mm -hmm. lives, and that is a. It's almost always of a person who said the thing they they most needed to hear at the time they most needed to hear it. Mm -hmm. Yep. So the question, from my perspective, really goes to how are we being authentic with one another and attentive enough to each other in the moment so that we can find the words that need to be heard. Mm. I've been thinking a lot about that as, you know, as I think about what it means to be a leader in higher education and to be a dean and trying to be much more attentive to what needs to be heard as opposed to what I feel I need to say. Yeah. And those are two very different kinds of things. So being attuned to the person with whom you're speaking, listening, being authentic, being candid, those are the things that I think move people to care about the issues that we're concerned about. And I think you have a, a much better chance of connecting with somebody when you can do that, when you can put aside all the surface mm -hmm. that we put up in front of the masks that we put up to try to be a certain way or seem a certain way. Kind of coming back to, um, as, well, I, okay. So we've been lately of late beating this drum of assessment because kind of like I said before, that's not always something that comes easier or naturally to, to some of us in, in the world, in the biz. And so We've been talking a lot about that lately when speaking with educators and communicators in our world. And we want them to have the tools to show the impact that they're making in a language that's relevant to the gatekeepers of the organization. So like, especially around budget time when we're looking to justify any increases or changes or, you know, keeping the amount that we, that we have and not having it um, whittled the way up. But so, Talk to us from your perspective about metrics for a minute. How can we do a better job at showing our impact? The question of metrics is central to what's happening right now in higher education. So if I look at that, if I look at that industry or that part of the world, the part of the world that I inhabit, the question of metrics and rankings and all the ways in which we try to measure the impact our work is having. We have a real challenge because the metrics that we are using to measure impact of work are often misaligned with the core values of the mission of our institutions and of our, of our efforts. So we've been really emphasizing getting back to core values and, and mission-driven conversations. So yes. I- <laughs> mm, Thank you. Wow, have you been reading our minds? <laughs> well, I mean, I think that's the, 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 cha the challenge is, and actually that, that resonates with people at 
every level of an organization when you can actually remind everyone of the core mission of the organization, what, why you're doing what you're doing. The question then becomes, okay, well, how are we living out those core values in a way that's identifiable as showing that we're actually making progress toward the vision that we share? So we have a Mellon-funded grant called it's called Humetrics HSS, which is the Developing Humane Metrics for the Humanities and Social Sciences. And we've tried to reverse engineer the metrics by going back to core values and having conversations around, well, what are the values we care most deeply about? Values like openness and equity and collegiality and community, in addition to quality and other kinds of things that are difficult to measure, but also kind of more traditional. And what we found is that by having the conversation about values, we actually can shift the focus to think about, well, how are our practices embodying those values? And then we can get to kind of a, a, a more detailed conversation about how are we measuring that those values are at play in a given product. But what it actually means is that we have to pay much more attention to the process. Yeah then ultimately to what's, what is produced. And what's exciting about it is that we can tell a more textured story about the work that we're doing. And we can also empower our faculty, for example, to, to think about what values they care most deeply about and how are they talking about putting those values into practice through their scholarship and their, and their teaching and the work. Yeah, and, and in our initial chat when you we were talking about that, you had said that we need to be careful about the metrics that we're choosing because sometimes the metrics that we're choosing can actually pervert the value of what we're trying to accomplish. So can you touch on that for a second? Well, a good example of, of that in my world is that, you know, everybody knows about the U.S. News and World Report rankings. And yeah. one of the key parts of that ranking algorithm is selectivity. So the number of students you reject. Oh, wow. Okay. Versus how many people applied to your university. Okay. Well, a university like Michigan State is a land-grant university, and a core value is access, accessibility, making an education more accessible to more people. So already now we're being measured by something that is cutting against a core value. That's a kind of example of the way that mm -hmm. uh, a ranking system can pervert values. Okay. When you say, what do you mean by land grant? Uh... Yeah. So land grant university is, is um, there, well, we can go back to 1862 in the middle of the civil war. Okay. Let's go back. Yeah. And <laughs> you know, there was a civil war happening and Justin Morrill was a Senator at, at the time. And he, thought that we needed to provide for the education of our citizens and we needed in particular to ensure that a broader swath of citizens are educated in what the moral act called the liberal and practical education of the citizenry. And so uh, the land grant act was passed in 1862 to provide land to, to states to create universities. And we have so many of our amazing universities across the country are land-grant universities. And if we look at, I'd say, the economic impact of those universities has been just 
tremendous in terms of the growth and success of the of the country. And that's something that concerns me a great deal as we think about how the higher education endeavor is being thought about from a political standpoint now. It, you know, there's a there's a real antipathy toward investing, reinvesting in something that has been hugely successful, even if you just take it from an economic standpoint, to say yeah. nothing of the lives that have been transformed, <laughs> you know, through education. Yeah. Wow. That's how we feel about people not wanting to reinvest in the <laughs> in the water infrastructure in the ground that's 100 mm -hmm. years old. <laughs> exactly. Is that, I mean, you know, we have to think about these, these gifts that we've inherited from mm -hmm. our predecessors. Yeah, we right. have to take care of them. Yeah, and speaking of land grant schools, <laughs> um, Texas A and M. Whoop! All right. Yeah. So yeah, give me that. Okay. So in our initial chat um, when we were talking, we you kind of like validated my uh, my journey through college. Um, you really a few one little one little comment really has like taken a weight off my chest about uh, I went to A and M. I was the first kid to go to school there in my family or go to school in general and I was doing so well and then you know student loans say no more you can't we're not going to give you any more money uh, so you need to graduate or quit you know and so I was I was studying wildlife and fishery science um, I'm losing my voice right now I was studying wildlife and fishery science and I had to make that decision of I'm gonna change my major so I can be done and I changed it to university studies and long story short that like weighed on me for a long time. I like was embarrassed by that, that I took this awesome, um, what could be an awesome, you know, major or way to study school. And I, it was like a, it was a, it, I saw that or felt that it was a negative thing that I didn't actually accomplish my, my goal. Um, and so I love that you took that off of me by saying, you know, this whole, um, integrated study approach and having more well-rounded graduates. Like, first of all, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know that you don't, you don't really know Arian, but I mean, that is a big deal. Like we owe you a drink the next time we see you. Yeah. <laughs> Cause that was a big deal. But, um, but even our, one of our mentors, George Hawkins, who's a leader in our industry, he talks about this idea of the IQ EQ equation and, um, knowing the intelligence side and the emotional side and, and kind of knowing, having the power to operate on both sides of that equation. And your work at MSU clearly demonstrates the value that you see in integrated studies. But, you know, I want to hear straight from the horse's mouth. Why do you think that this is so important? Well, we need to provide our students and future citizens with a more holistic and textured understanding of the world that we care deeply about. And so, Arianne, your experience and your, the, your major is designed to give you that holistic understanding and to empower you to see across disciplines what's possible. Mm -hmm. So disciplines are great at giving us depth and going deep into a, a, a topic. And that's important. We don't, we can't lose that depth. But seeing across disciplines and understanding the deeper questions that we're asking within a broader context of the world that we're trying to create 
is the way to make transformative change. And so the work that you're doing with this podcast and with your work you know, with water is exactly the performance of what a general education can empower citizens to, to do. So when you look across the higher education landscape and you see major universities and also smaller universities talking about uh, a general education or liberal arts education, that's what we're talking about. We're talking about the capacity to bring a more holistic understanding of the world to bear on the biggest questions that we have and to understand the ethical concerns, the interpersonal concerns, the social justice questions, the political questions, the economic questions, the deep scientific questions that are all at play. And you might not have a full purchase on all of those things, mm -hmm. but you know how to bring those issues into conversation with one another. You're able to engage the people who do have the expert level of understanding of some things so that they can have conversations that might actually move us toward solutions to some of our most right. challenging issues. I love that we're taking the silos away. Like, yes. Yeah. 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 We yeah. Got, they've got to be porous, you know? Yeah. yeah. Like I, I heard this, uh, cause I follow all kinds of different entrepreneurs and I heard one talk about how he actually left college before graduating and starting his business because he was frustrated by the fact that he was having to take all of these classes that he didn't think were relevant to, um, his path. And when I first read that, I was like, I initially thought, well, I mean, yeah, I guess that's true. If you like, why am I taking this? If I have no intention of doing anything related to this when I graduate, but then as I, you know, then we had our conversation and that made me kind of see things differently. And then even with the case of our intern this summer, who is an environmental engineer, but has learned so much working with us EQ people over here on the communication side. And, you know, she feels like a lot of the things that she learned are going to actually help her be a better engineer. And, and, um, so yeah, that, that whole integrated approach is while some people may think that, they're in some way wasting time or missing out, you're actually learning skills that in some way will benefit you further down the road. And just to kind of keep an open mind and be a little bit more long-term, long view it more long-term than just what am I doing mm -hmm. this for right now? Yeah, I'm gonna wear it proudly now. Yeah. Good, good. Well, I mean, I think one of the challenges that we have is that we think about education in two instrumental ways and and we think about it not as uh we, we think about it as an end toward a specific profession when yes education will position you well to thrive in a variety of different kinds of professions but what we what we need to recognize is that the ability to know how to learn mm -hmm. you know yeah. we need to learn how to learn so that you can be in a variety of different kinds of professions and think and have a deeper understanding of what you need to know to be successful. That, that's a really important frame to have when you think about education. And I would say, you know, it's incumbent upon us in higher education to make that case more compelling in tangible ways. 
So it's not enough just to say, well, yes, education is inherently valuable and people should want to do it. We need to make those, that curriculum associated with the courses that some students think, well, why am I taking this? We need to, we need to tell the story about why yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should be taking this. You yeah, know? absolutely. And I mean, I used to think also for a while that I was like, what am I doing? My undergrad is in marketing and entrepreneurial management from the business school. My master's is in environmental science. I'm a certified public communicator through TCU. Like what the, but it turns out that all of those things <laughs> work really well together when you're starting, you know, I had no idea that, who knew that here, here I would be and all of those things would be incredibly useful. So you just never know. You just got to stay the path and, and find what you're passionate about and, you know, use that in tandem with the skills that you're using. So sometimes random is not always bad. Yeah. No, exactly. I think you need to also think about what do you care about? I mean, yeah. what contribution do you want to make? What values do you want to embody with your life? Yep. You know, is it just going to be a very narrow professional career that you're thinking about? Or do you want to make a difference in a specific area? Do you want to transform some community in some way? What is, what contribution are you going to make? Yeah. Preach, preach. <laughs> so I'm going to ask you a little, I'm going to millennial, we're going to go down a millennial path for a second. Okay. So you're yeah. face to face with the next generation every day. What makes them different and what can generations that are currently in the workforce expect when they show up? I could not be more heartened by the yeah. generation that we see entering into me the university right now i mean we have students coming in who are so committed to making a difference in the world they want to bring their education out into the world they don't want to just be uh, stuck in the classroom they want to think about they want to think deeply about issues and then they want to bring that deep thinking to bear on grand challenges that we face we're seeing more and more students with very sophisticated understanding of power dynamics, of questions of diversity and equity and how we can create more just communities together. I mean, this level of sophistication of students coming out of high school and into college really gives us an opportunity to move in a very exciting way. We need to rise to meet that challenge on the side of, of higher education, because that means higher education also has to be more dynamic, more directly engaged, more focused on giving the students the skills that they're demanding when they come yeah, here. They're really raising the bar. Absolutely. So I, I'm, I'm very excited. We, we have every, we have students coming. We have a program here in the College of Arts and Letters called the Citizen Scholars Program. And what, what it is, is it's an invitation to incoming freshmen to aspire to be citizen scholars by bringing their arts and humanities values out into the world. And once they do a certain set of, of things in that vein, then we admit them into the citizen scholars program and give them a little bit of money to do education abroad, experiential learning, that sort of thing. And what we see is students who come to us having done an enormous amount of volunteer work in high school, having done a, yeah. a, a ton of engaged work with the community and who are just ready to bring those values to bear on their own education. Well, we definitely have a case study that backs up everything you said sitting in our office right now, because I would say like 
Erin's probably one of the most intelligent, smartest working people. She puts a lot of like 30 year olds that I know to shame. So <laughs> that was a dig on me, I feel like. Uh, no, <laughs> no, but so everything you say, she, she said is backed up 100% by mm -hmm. our experience with working with her yeah. this summer. Yeah. And staying on that same topic, you know, what are ways that we can better engage with this younger generation? And you've mentioned before in conversations with us that they don't like to learn passively. Um, so can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think we, we need to do, in a, in a way, part of what we were talking about early in the conversation, namely enter into the teaching connection with those students prepared to learn as much as to teach. Obviously, faculty have an enormous amount to teach students when they come to college, but the more that we can engage in a dialogical relationship, pedagogical relationship with, with students, the more transformative that education is going to be both for students and for the faculty. So I think that's a, an important part of of that. The other thing I would say, and this is, I know, dear to all of our hearts, is the issue of engagement through digital media and through new modes of communication. I think there is a, a huge opportunity for us to bring the what I would consider the habits of a, a good liberal arts education to bear on new modes of, of communication. So for example, a podcast where you can play with ideas in a maybe a more dynamic way than you might in a, a writing format. Yeah. Um, and the question that, that we have to ask ourselves is, are we using words and making ideas public in ways that are enriching our relationships with one another rather than impoverishing? Yeah. And, and that doing that in a substantive way and learning how to do that, giving people space to fail at doing that and being forgiving and generous in that context yeah. is really important. Yeah, and, and on the same note of you saying that higher education needs to be ready to raise the bar to meet this this higher level thinking generation that's coming in, you know, as, as informal educators in our world, we're, you know, we're dealing with the same kids. So we also have to understand that, you know, we have to bring our A game into these situations too, because, and on, on the other flip side of that, that the, the people that are maybe the gatekeepers of, of budgeting for that thing also need to realize that we're dealing with, we're dealing with a whole new animal now and a new generation and that, we need to be making sure that we're adjusting our efforts of what we're trying to do in the community to meet to meet that change as well. So I think it, I think that's a key message for all educators everywhere in both your world and in ours is that you know we got to up our game. Yeah, we're, absolutely. They're not they're not Blackberries anymore. These are iPhone 10s and iPhone Xs up in this generation. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. And when you think about something like the importance of water as a a core part of what nurtures us and nourishes us. It, it, you know, you we can't go away from the deeper value of well-being and and our ability to provide one another with the the basic needs that that we have. So I, I'm really thrilled with the work that you guys are doing around water. Yeah, and to and to speak towards the idea of not learning passively. I mean, you. Erin uh, taught us with our time with her how passionate her generation is about, like you said, making an impact and 
the whole social just social justice side of water that I mean, so often time gets overlooked. A lot of people don't even realize that there are social justice issues around water in the United States. It, a lot of people think that that's just a global problem, but just that she has that perspective and that mindset to be like, no, this is happening and we want to do something about it. And I want to watch TED Talks about it and do research and all this. So for whatever we've taught her, she's she's definitely taught us. And she told us about this collegiate summer camp program that she's been a part of since she was in seventh grade. It's at Duke, sorry, competitor. And uh, <laughs> and uh, how one of her teachers through one of those programs incorporated everything in the class from debates to documentaries to podcasts to, to really help engage the students and get them not just learning passively. And, you know, to the point that it impacted her so strongly that we're actually interviewing that teacher for, for one of our podcast episodes. So, so you've kind of already touched this before on how we can use things like podcasts and to to create this sort of digital community to engage with the younger generations. Can you uh, expand on that a little more? Yeah, one of the things that I've had uh, a lot of fun doing in some of my own classes is asking students to do their own podcasting. So one, one um, semester I had, you know, I was watching, you know, I don't know, weekend review in uh, watching a weekend review or something, and I was like, you know, why don't we have a weekend review of what happened in class? And in, and ask students, you know, in instead of giving presentations at the end of the semester, each week a, a group of students would do the weekend review podcast, and so they would record, kind of, they they could do whatever they wanted, whether they focused on a reading or conversations in classroom, and and it was great to see how the students, first of all, love putting on a radio show, basically, is oh, what yeah. they did, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. and then it became a great, great chronicle of the whole semester's worth of work. So that's a, an example of the kind of active learning that is really powerful when you think about how easy it is to put a podcast together, how easy it is to create a blog that you can begin to make ideas public on, how we need to empower our students to give feedback on one another's work. I mean, once I started having students blogging and allowing them to see each other's work, I was really able to get them to make changes and revise their work because they wanted to have it look good for their yeah. colleagues, right. you know? Yeah. So it's really a very powerful set of opportunities we have with how easy it is now to publish things, whether that be through podcasting or blogging or even, you know, video, you know, vlogging, everything. Oh, and, and it's, it's funny, you say easy and me and Ariane are like, really? But no, I mean, it's like <laughs> it's, the, the tools to learn are out there, but, but you're right, for, for that generation, it is easy. I mean, you know, kids before they're even talking somehow know how to access every button on a phone. So yeah, my eight-year-old niece is on YouTube doing shows already. I'm like, what? Yeah, that's just, <laughs> exactly. that's just the nature of the beast. But, um, and also I can definitely see how putting theory to action and actually applying it and using it. And that helps to drive things in, make them more, more memorable and, and more relatable. So yeah, it, that's, that's a really good idea. I like that. Um, but I mean, with those technologies, I mean, the, there are 
affordances and limitations. So yeah. the fact that it is so easy to publish something, to record yourself on YouTube, to create an Instagram story, that also means that you need to be thinking about the power that's coming with that. What mm -hmm. is it that you're trying to convey? How are you embodying the values you care most deeply about in that communication? And that's the challenge, I think, and the responsibility that we have in higher education and education of all sorts is to, is to empower our students and ourselves to think more deeply about how we are using this enormous power we have in our pockets to enrich the world rather than pull us apart and impoverish our relationships. Yeah, I think it was Spider-Man who said, with great power comes great responsibility. Or maybe That's that was right. his dad, somebody like yeah. that, or his uh, grandfather, uncle, or whoever that guy was. Um, <laughs> so uh, technology is awesome. Obviously, we dig it because we're using it right now, and, and we're passionate about our industry using the power of data and technology, but combined with public outreach and engagement to, to really create the most impact. So we don't want people to forget the power of a smile or hey, <laughs> or a handshake or, you know, just this as much as you can, like a face-to-face -face conversation, which is why we always kind of insist with all of our guests to, to have the video chat because it makes it more like the conversation. And we didn't know that this idea had Greek philosophy roots, which you told us. So let's, we're going to get deep for a minute and go go philosophy and uh, and talk about the value of combining both the written and the oral format or, tra um, or tradition when passing down information from generation to generation. Yes. Well, so one of the things that we, we talked about before was the question of, you know, philosophy has come down, more, you know, more recent developments have, have turned philosophy into a kind of academic profession, but really what philosophy is, is a life's practice. It's about living in a very intentional way and thinking about what it means to be human and what contribution that we're going to make during our finite time here on earth. And one of the key figures in my own academic tradition has been, and has been Socrates, and Socrates was someone who went around Athens and annoyed quite a few people by asking them what, what they cared most about and, and what the meaning of justice is and what, is, what does it mean to, to what, does, what is good and, and what is true. And he chose to do that in an oral mode of communication. He chose not to write. But of course, we know about Socrates because other people, most notably Plato, wrote about him and chose the, chose the then new technology of writing to make some of those ideas both more lasting, but also potentially more static. Because as soon as you write something down, it becomes calcified in a certain kind of way. Yeah. So combining these two I mean, the challenge with an oral tradition is, of course, that the that the ideas can get lost because if they're not if they're not handed down generation after generation. What we have with the emergence of digital technologies, it seems to me, is a, an interesting combination of both opportunities, both opportunities for writing and for more dynamic interchange, like the ones that we're, we're having here. I would say that the 
point that you made, Stephanie, earlier about the importance of the face-to-face -face is still salient because so often the texture of meaning and conversation is lost in when it's mediated by digital modes of communication. Yeah, yeah. And when you were talking about kind of what can happen when things are passed down orally, I, I thought of that game Telephone where you, you start you say something and then you see what it sounds like as you <laughs> right. as down the chain of people. But yeah, that's, that's an idea. Like that whole concept is all, is something that you know I'm familiar with because I'm Jewish and we have both sort of that written and oral tradition and how they kind of work together in tandem with one another. When we're looking at these things that were written, you know, thousands of years ago and we're like, huh? And they're like, Oh, right. but a group of rabbis were around a table and this is what they said uh, through this kind of oral tradition. And that was written down. So it's no wonder that it's very it's very complicated to explain to my friends, but yeah, I I get that whole written oral combination and how they they can be used together. There's like one more thing you said that made me um, oh the face to face is that in you know in our situation we've also found that the the face to face component can also disarm. Um, people who, because it's so easy to say something when you're safe behind a screen, or it's so easy to say something that's ugly or, or hurtful when you can just type it and then close the box and, it, and it's gone, whether that be on a computer or a phone. And so we found that, that also that face-to-face -face component kind of disarms some of that and, and kind of brings people back to humanizing one another and, and having a, yeah, being kind and having a better dialogue and so we preach that face-to-face -face a lot. So I'm glad, thank you for letting us know that there's something legit to that and not just something that we like to do. <laughs> no, absolutely. I mean, I think it's so important. One of the things I can remember early on, I'm a, a pretty big fan of Twitter and early on in my time using Twitter, we were, we had set it up so that you could actually, you know, you would see the, the tweets coming up on the screen in front, in front of you. And I remember we were in, I mean, it was a room of, maybe a hundred people. And when you tweeted, your tweet came up on the screen. Yeah. And I remember seeing that and thinking, okay, now I have a better sense that that very private pressing of a button to send, to tweet, to publish, whatever it is, is actually being seen. I mean, in this room, it was being seen at once by about a hundred people, but imagine, I mean, you know, I have thousands of people I mean, in, in Twitter, it's, it's public, so like that. theoretically anybody could see it. it, you know, but you lose that, what that means. I mean, your mind doesn't really grasp that. Yeah. So having the face-to-face -face and having the ability to read gestures and to sort of, to follow up, to ask, well, what did you mean by that? Or I, I heard that this way, is that what you meant? You know, we need to find ways to do that more effectively in digital modes of communication. Yeah, and, and, we, and we can get long-winded, so it's nice to see when you wanna interject. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> um, so we recently interviewed a, a public relations expert and she talked about how our water is a shared responsibility that requires this partnership between water providers and the community they serve. So shout out to Samantha Villegas, um, episode 14. So collaboration is obviously our jam, um, the three of us. 
and we both share, or we, I guess the three of us all share that mindset. So tell us how collaboration is permeating your world. Like, is this a new idea? Is this an old one that's becoming hip again? You know, why does it seem so difficult for some <laughs> industries to embrace it? It's not a new idea, but it is a hard set of habits to learn. I think, I mean, we could probably go into a variety of, of reasons for that. I think part of, part of the podcast two. podcast two. Okay. <laughs> the, the, I mean, one, one thing to say, particularly in the United States is we have a very long history of a certain kind of individualism. The sort of a story around the rugged individual who is making her his own way and 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 that ideal and that story is part of what presents us with the challenge when we have to remind everyone that nobody is doing any of this alone that everybody is depending on one another in one way or another to be successful and that the myth of you know the self-made person is always predicated on you know, histories of injustice and privilege that, that people often fail to see. So I think exposing that more clearly, and then I think the harder piece is learning the habits of generosity and humility and flexibility and a being okay with a little messiness and listening effectively. All of these habits of mind and practice are hard to learn. And we need to, 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 to teach that. That's part of what I hope uh, students will learn in their experience in higher education is how to work with, with others, how to understand the perspective of others and to think more deeply about how we're tied together in an interconnected world and we depend on each other yeah and that we don't always have to agree on everything there there seems to be like no no real grasp or understanding of um Kathy, why do you um give and take and i just completely lost the word that's 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 give and take i mean you can't, it can't always be your way all the time sometimes you got to give a little and and it goes back and forth but just recognizing that we don't all have to agree on everything but we can find some common ground and, and move forward with each other based on that. So. Absolutely. And I think that, that, that a willingness to listen mm -hmm. and a recognition that there's a deeper texture of meaning to every interesting question than we are led to believe often, certainly by the media when it's, you know, yes or no. Yeah. And it's always a dichotomous, set of answer when you see how shows are set up these talk shows and things it's always pro and con and it's never or rarely the texture of a question and we need to help learn ourselves and help our future generations coming up learn how to deal with the complexity and the texture of the problems that we're facing because if we get into this antagonistic mode immediately then we just pull each other apart and the questions never really get addressed mm -hmm. yes sir well um this has been great thank you so much this is this has been fun um i'm gonna let arianne get into uh, kick off the 
whirlwind round. Oh, whirlwind. Okay. Cyclone round. Cyclone. I've right. been I've been looking up some new words. It was instead of the lightning, the lightning round. round. <laughs> Anyways, so okay, I need to know what your favorite book is right now that you can recommend to everyone. Octavia Butler's Kindred is both, uh, it's a, a little bit of an older book, but I have been reading Octavia Butler, loving her work, and uh, I read Kindred just recently, and it's, it's amazing. Awesome. What is something that you do every day that drives your productivity? I write. I write for myself privately in a journal. I use a favorite pens of mine, and I <laughs> write reflectively, try to think a little bit more okay. about about what matters to me, and uh, that shapes my that shapes my life. Awesome. How long do you write? <laughs> <laughs> it <laughs> depends. I ask of this all is, writers. Because she's asking of, for a friend. I'm asking. For <laughs> <laughs> it depends. So that kind of writing that I'm talking about is really very much self-reflective writing. It's really writing for myself, and I make a little bit of time every day for that. And I have been very intentional about it over the last year or so. So I've been, you know, a little bit of writing every day and I, and it can be if I'm exhausted and I can't deal with much and I'm, you know, then it can be two minutes, five minutes, <laughs> but then sometimes it can be, you know, 45 minutes of just, you know, and it, and I try to do it in a very stream of consciousness, but also I'm, I'm trying to be more now um, intentional about having it be more shaped, but, at the start, it was just, I'm committing to writing something in my book every day. Yeah. Yeah. Do you use any sort of prompt or is it just kind of like whatever the day brought and where you're at in that moment? It's usually where I am in the moment. And um, so I don't, I mean, sometimes it can just be a little bit of a description of what happened, but mostly it's, it's, uh, um, it's encouraging myself to live up to my deepest convictions. Ooh, so it's a lot of it is, <laughs> it's a kind of exhortation of the self. And you, Chris, know, you got this. <laughs> <laughs> it, you know, it, it, it's a reminder trying to write out the things I care most deeply about and ask myself, okay, did I, did I live that out today in ways that I can be proud of? Or, and, and where can I, where do I need to, to work on? I didn't, what do I, need to, I didn't mean to take you down that path. It's that's this very, very selfish reasons why I'm asking this, <laughs> because as a writer, that's one of the things that I always try to do. But I always like fall. I'm real good for like 30 days and then I fall off the wagon and then I'm like, oh, it's been like two months and I haven't written in my journal. So but I think it's just because I put too much pressure on myself and and I'm like, oh, you only wrote for a couple minutes. Yeah. Well, you suck. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what it, the way I and I was when I started doing this, I was worried that oh, am I gonna am I gonna be able to keep this up? I I have actually really looked forward to that time alone with myself each day because it, it, it I've seen the way that it keeps me focused. It, my uh, daughter Hannah likes to talk about that as you know when you're with your alone self and i <laughs> yeah. think about you know what is the conversation you're having you're having with your alone self and how is that allowing you to stay focused on the things that matter most to you yeah i do i wake up at 5 a.m every day so i can have 
an hour with my alone self. <laughs> yeah, that's important. Whether it's to read or uh, sometimes I write, I need to do that more, but yeah. So, okay, cool. You've inspired me. Thank you. So you've inspired both of us now. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So our last question is the same question that we ask all of our guests. I always love the answers because everyone's are just inspiring on their own and uh, it's related to a, a call to action. So Sometimes we hear, you know, well, what difference does it make if I make a change? I'm just one person. It's not going to make a big impact. And Arianne and I, of course, full wholeheartedly disagree with that because we think that one person making a change can be contagious and inspire others to make a change. And um, so what's the one call to action that, that you're most passionate about that you believe can ultimately change the world? It would be to invest in the transformative power of education mm. and to recognize that our capacity to deepen our understanding of the world that we share will allow us to live more meaningfully together. So I, the call to action would be to support education in every form that you can find in every way, whether it be through your higher education institutions or through elementary schools, local schools, advocate with your politician friends that they should invest, reinvest in education across the state and the country because that effort to empower people to think more deeply about the world that we share is gonna transform the world we care most deeply about. Mm. Amen. That's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Like There's it. a quote by, uh, I'm probably butchering that name, but it, it talks about how people aren't going to conserve something until they, until they love it and they're not going to love it until they understand it. Not, they're not going to understand it until they're taught. So it all comes back to education and that's, that's the beginning and, and that's should be step one. So thank you for that. That's a great way, great note to end yeah. to um, a an industry of informal educators across the country, across the world. And so it's been such a joy to be able to get the perspective of uh, a dean yeah. <laughs> from higher education. What an honor. So thank you so much you. For, for, for spending that time with us today. I know you're super busy, especially with school about to start. <laughs> thank you. It's been great to be with you. You can find the show notes at the h2duo.com slash water in real life, where we have all the resources mentioned in this episode and much more. We are incredibly passionate about being a resource for the industry, and we can only do that with your help. So show us some love by simply subscribing to the podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, be sure to rate and review us on iTunes so we can become the only duo run show about water. Get us a little bit of shelf space on that iTunes homepage. You can find us on Twitter and Instagram at the underscore H2Duo. Be sure to give us a comment, feedback, shout out. We'd love to hear from you. We hope you learned something new, got a little inspired, and most importantly, took action on something today that will move you one step closer to your goal. Until next time, remember what one of our favorite quotes says. Those who tell the stories rule the world.